0: Well, our ushers are going to be uh, coming by to pass out note sheets and pencils if you need them. Also, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along with what we're teaching today, you can uh, raise your hand and our guys would be happy to bring a Bible to your seat. If you don't personally own a Bible and, uh, and if you are hoping to read the Word of God, then take one of ours. Put your name in it. Make it yours. Bring it home. We would love for everybody to have the Word of God available to them. Uh, so that would be our gift to you today. If you're here for the first time, this uh, service is not going to (coughs) be remarkably different than what we would normally do on a Lord's Day, because really the the risen Savior is the focus of every Sunday. When we come to worship God together, we are acknowledging the wonderful work that Jesus Christ has done in our lives through the Son. We are here to celebrate the fact that those who trust Him of the Holy Spirit and are walking with a new power, regenerated and made alive uh, by the gift that Christ gave to us on Calvary. So... uh, We're going to do many of the same things on a regular Sunday morning, praising His name, focusing on Him. Uh, But today we are looking particularly uh, at some passages of Scripture that are going to help us to understand how this beauty, this beauty of resurrection, um, was not just a new idea presented in the New Testament, but how it runs throughout the whole course of God's story for us, the whole Word of God. For the past three weeks, we have been looking at the ways that the Old Testament points directly to the future events of the cross. By examining the continuity between the Old and the New Testaments, we can see the big picture of God's plan for redemption. (coughs) We can develop a greater appreciation for the Old Covenant texts that often get overlooked and often get marginalized. So we can see that they point very clearly by God's design to the cross. And then also this study between the Old and the New Covenants has helped us to learn to rejoice in ways that God's covenant promises are perfected and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if you've not been here, don't worry, you're not going to get totally lost. Uh, the, the concepts we're going to talk today, uh, talk about today are, are standalone concepts. But just as a recap, some of the things that we've been looking at in the last few weeks. We talked about how the faith of Abraham, the father of Israel, was exhibited in his willingness to offer his son Isaac back to the Lord as sacrifice. And how that set a pattern for God offering up his own precious son, Jesus, as a true sacrifice for us. We talked about the sign of Jonah, which is mentioned in Matthew 12 and in the book of Luke, chapter 9, that was not only a picture of Jesus being in the tomb for three days, just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of a great fish, but was also a sign that those who don't repent and receive God's offer of mercy will face certain judgment. So there's an urgency to this connection. Just as Jonah preached repentance to the Gentiles in Nineveh, so too does God today proclaim repentance in the world and urge people to trust in Jesus and turn from their sin to follow Him. Last week, Pastor Paul preached about the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness as a sign to God's people that they would be saved by grace, not by works. Looking upon Jesus, who would also be made a curse for us and then be lifted up into the air All who look upon Christ in faith will experience forgiveness for their sins. And then at sunrise this morning, as we we woke up early, some of us went up to the the hill to praise God as the sun crested the, uh, the horizon. We spoke about the manna that God provided for the nation of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And how the true manna, the great fulfillment of God's provision, is Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life who offers himself to nourish us and strengthen us and to give us life in him so that we might have victory over our sin and reconciliation with God. So you can see kind of the pattern that's been set in these passages that we've been connecting from Old to New Testament. Each of these Old Covenant shadows and types provide overwhelming evidence that the New Covenant of Grace is not a deviation or an alternative to the Old Covenant of Works it is instead the fulfillment of all the great things that the old covenant pointed forward to and promised to God's people. And so this morning, we're going to be examining the shadow of the cross that appeared most frequently throughout the life and history of the covenant people Israel, the Levitical system of sacrificial offerings. Now, I imagine that most of you, when you were getting ready for church today, got ready in basically the same way. Uh, You woke up, maybe took a shower, Thank you if you did. Uh, You got coffee going so that you'd be awake and alert. Uh, If you have kids, you probably had to take some time motivating them, making sure they didn't put on the same clothes they wore yesterday, making sure they actually brushed their teeth instead of just saying that they had brushed their teeth. You might have spent a little time in personal prayer. You might have read the scripture a little bit on your own today to prepare yourself to worship. If you came to the Sunrise Servant, maybe you sprayed bug repellent over yourself because the mosquitoes are in force up on that hill in the morning times. But none of us had to go out to the stable and pick which of your sheep you were going to be bringing to church today as a sin offering. You didn't have to figure out how to get that animal to church and how to offer it to the Lord without getting any stains on your nice Easter outfit. You guys look great, by the way. None of us had to do that this morning, amen? And we have Jesus to thank for that. Things are different today. Until Jesus came and gave His life on the cross, worshiping God very commonly meant bringing an animal to the temple as an offering to the Lord God, as a sacrifice, as a way of keeping one's relationship with God holy and pure. Today we're going to look at the way that God used that sacrificial system for so many generations to keep His people close to Him and to help them to anticipate the greater offering that would one day be made for sin. The offering of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is predominantly a story about God's interaction with His chosen people, the Israelites. And throughout the vast majority of that Old Testament record, the Israelites (coughs) were operating under a covenant we call the Covenant of Works, or the Mosaic Covenant. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 10, God's Word, He said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God drew his people into a covenant agreement. And a covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties that determines how those two parties will interact with one another. In the biblical usage of the term, a covenant describes the way that God wanted to interact with his chosen people who would worship him, who would represent him in the world, so that he could work through their lives and reveal to all creation his character and his will. This chosen people is, of course, called Israel, a nation that was not even a nation until God formed them from the offspring of a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. God made their family into a nation so that they would be his representative people. He would be their God, working in them, guiding them, and maintaining a close connection with them. So to cultivate this covenant connection, God needed to instruct the people and give them direction on how to be his people. Through the prophet Moses, God provided a law, along with a system of worship that we call the Levitical system of sacrificial offerings, This is called such because the tribe of the Levites were tasked with the responsibility of maintaining this system, and it is described in its greatest detail in the book of Leviticus, which instructs the Levites. This system needed to accomplish a couple of very important things. First of all, the Levitical system needed to provide a way for God to be present with His covenant people. Now, God is not like you and I. He's not in a, he doesn't have a body. He's not an old man with a great big long beard. He is spirit. And so how does spirit dwell with material man? God had no intention of entering into a covenant with Israel and then ignoring them. He called his people to have fellowship and friendship with him in order to help Israel understand that the invisible God was near to them, that he was to be involved in their day-to-day lives. God instructed them to build a special dwelling place where they would understand God's presence to reside among them. The tabernacle, and later the temple, played a key role in illustrating to Israel and the nations surrounding Israel that the God of Israel was among them. That He wasn't some far-off deity or some concept that exists only in the mind, but that He was there, in reality, dwelling among His people. The tabernacle was a temporary tent-like structure, that the Israelites could disassemble and take with them as they traveled from place to place in the wilderness. It was first built around 1450 B.C., before Israel had been allowed to enter the promised land of Canaan. So the dwelling place of God needed to be portable. It needed to be able to move as God moved his people from one location to another. Generations later, after they had taken possession of Jerusalem and the Holy Land, and they had been established in this place of promise, a permanent temple was built to replace the tabernacle's function. It served the same purposes as, as the tabernacle, but was permanent and therefore more elaborately decorated, more ornate. The tabernacle was a rectangular framed tent about 15 feet wide and about 45 feet long. This tent was divided into a large room and a smaller room. In the larger room were various pieces of furniture that served a practical as well as a symbolic function in the worship of the Israelites to God. And at the far end of the tabernacle was a special smaller room called the Holy of Holies. This room formed a 15-foot cube and was cordoned off from the rest of the structure by an ornate and heavy robe with uh, cherubim um, embroidered into it to remind them that this was a place of holiness, The only item inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God. Stored inside of this throne was the Ten Commandments written on stone tablets, a jar of holy food, manna that God used to sustain the Israelites through their wanderings in the wilderness. We talked about that this morning on the hill. And the staff of Moses who led them to freedom in obedience to God. To really drive home the point that God was among His people, A type of theophany, a miraculous manifestation of God's presence, rested on the tabernacle at all times. By day, a supernatural cloud enveloped the holy tent. By night, that cloud was replaced by a fire that burned without consuming the tent. And these images, these supernatural manifestations of God's presence, proved to them that God was near to his people. So God had drawn near to these special people. He desired for them to draw near to him as well. So in addition to having Israel build a tabernacle, God ordained a process whereby the Israelites could approach him in his dwelling place to worship him. (coughs) Worship is an important way to have fellowship with the living God. That's part of how our relationship is designed to function. It is focused on honoring God, appreciating who he is and what he has done, and is absolutely appropriate in light of the fact that we owe our very existence to this Creator. The Levitical system provided instructions to Israel regarding how God desired to interact with us. Praises would be sung. Prayers would be lifted up. God's people would read God's Word. And offerings would be given there. I want you to take note. God God wants to be worshipped in very specific ways. And if you were to go back and read through all the, the history of Leviticus... Uh, which we don't have time to really work through in detail today, you'd see that God was very specific in the ways He desired His people to come to Him. To enter into the presence of Holy God was actually a dangerous thing for them. And so He wanted to give them guidance and instruction so that they would not enter in an unworthy way, that they would not enter in a way that would result in punishment. (coughs) It is perfectly reasonable that God would dictate the terms of man's relationship with Him because He is greater than we are. He is absolutely pure, and we are not. He knows all things. He has all resources. And so as part of this plan that God has um, presented through Moses to his people to interact with them, a structure was put into place for offerings to be given and thanksgiving to be expressed to God. The Israelites owed a great debt of gratitude to God for forming them into a nation and showing them special favor over all the other nations of the world. The Levitical system of sacrifice provided guidelines that directed Israel to offer their gratitude and appreciation in appropriate ways. While singing, praying, teaching were all forms of worship, there were other practices such as the grain offerings and the peace offerings that didn't require any sacrifice of life. They were just a way for God's people to come forward and say, Thank you, God. I acknowledge that you are the one that is loving me through life, that is keeping me afloat. You're the one that I can turn to. You're the one who cares for me more than anyone else. So these offerings were given in thanksgiving and in celebration of the covenant that Israel had entered into. But as you think about the difference between God and man, you might begin to notice that there is really a dilemma here. God desires to be near to His people. But that presents a very real problem because God is holy and people are not holy. The holiness, the purity of God, the fact that He is unstained by evil demands a holiness for His people. As He draws people near to Him, they must somehow become holy in order to rightfully be in the presence of such perfect holiness as God. We see in the New Testament testimony, 1 John 1, through 5-6, This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You understand the dilemma. God wants to be near to His covenant people, but because of their broken hearts, because of their tendency to sin and and the nature to do wickedness that is within them, how can God draw them close? If a man is going to draw near to God, man has to be careful that he does it in a respectful and reverent way. The scripture teaches that light can have no fellowship with darkness. The things of goodness cannot mingle with the things of wickedness. And So God had taken the first step of love and he had drawn these Israelites near to him, sending Moses to challenge Pharaoh, making miraculous plagues that afflicted Egypt until the Pharaoh conceded and allowed them to go, bringing them out of their bondage of slavery and toward a wonderful new home. But sin is a reality that threatens that divine presence, that unity that God wants to engineer. How can God be near to a people who sin? So we see here the second aspect of this covenant. In addition to facilitating God's nearness to his chosen people, the Levitical system needed to provide a way for the sin of Israel to be overcome. God did not choose Israel to be his covenant people because they were the least sinful of all the societies on earth. On the contrary, Israel was a nation that was deeply flawed and struggled regularly with moral impurity. Even after they entered into a covenant with God, Israel was constantly violating God's commands and committing sin against him again and again and again. That is is not a small thing. Because this God that we come to worship today, this God of truth and this God of goodness, is holy. And his holiness means that he can't just love what is good, he must also hate what is wicked. God despises those things that cast darkness into the heart of man. To break God's command is to sin to act as though we owe Him nothing, to act as though He has no authority over us, to act as though He is not worthy of our obedience. When we sin, we turn away from God and take steps away from Him. God is the source of our life, friends. So when you take steps away from the source of life, you are putting your very life in danger. The world that we live in has adopted a dangerously cavalier attitude towards sin. Sin is... Is now thought of as as a small thing, as an inconvenience, as the worst of different choices that you could make. But it isn't seen as the deadly danger to our relationship with God that God intends us to see it as. We have to learn to hate sin the way that God hates sin. And not just the sin in others, the sin in ourselves. Let me try to illustrate this to you. Imagine you have a dog. Some of you have dogs. I'm a huge pet lover. I love my dog, Nellie. She's a mutt hybrid that we got from Rescue. And she's a a, a great friend to my kids. Love running with her, love hanging out with her. Imagine you have a great big dog. You also have little kids. Imagine the horror if one day something went wrong and your dog turned on your child, and your dog mauled your child, and your child died. How would you respond to that? Would you make excuses for the dog? Would you say, we've got to give this dog another chance? Would you keep that dog around your children? As much as it would hurt you, you'd have to take that dog out of your family environment. You'd have to preserve the safety of your children. Every time you saw that dog, it would remind you of the death of your child. It would remind you of this love that was lost. And friends, we need to start to see sin the same way. That sin makes us at odds with the God who loves us better than anyone loves us. When we allow sin to be a part of our lives, when, when we capitulate to the, the nature of, of disobedience and rebellion that, that is, we're born into, and we're allowing dangerous things to enter into our fellowship with God. We are putting at jeopardy our, cl- our closeness to Him. Do we hate sin, friends? When we turn on the news and we see things like this horrible tragedy that happened in Sri Lanka, this detestable way that people are trading, treating each other in hatred, blowing each other up, and causing senseless death, it should anger us. We should be upset at this sin but we should be just as upset when we look in the mirror and we evaluate our own heart and we realize that hatred exists in us too, that laziness exists in us too, that dishonesty and deceit exists in us too. We cannot allow this wickedness to dwell in ourselves. Ultimately, the consequences of committing sin against God, the Scripture tells us, is death. Because God is the giver of life to offend him in that way means that we deserve, rightfully, justly, to have our lives taken away from us. The sacrificial system taught the people of Israel the dangerous reality of sin. A living animal would be brought into the tabernacle. It had to be a flawless animal. It couldn't be that animal that never walked right anyway, couldn't pull the, the plow. It couldn't be that sick animal that's on its last legs. It couldn't be that the old animal that's no longer vital anyway. You had to bring one of the newborn animals, firstborn of your flock. You had to bring something that was not defiled by sickness, a pure animal. And then the priest would instruct the one who was giving the offering to place their own hand on the living creature's head in order to identify with that life. Then in the temple, as that person looked upon that animal, the animal would be slaughtered right before them. And its life would escape it. And the gruesome and grisly reality of our sin would be plainly before that individual. That animal, they would see, would be offered as a substitute for them. His life would be taken away rather than the human being's life. The blood of that offering would be sprinkled upon the altar. Depending on the specific sacrifice, part of the animal would be burned up as a gift to the Lord and part would be given to supply the needs of the priests who served in the temple. And to our modern sensibilities... This seems gruesome, doesn't it? Why does sin require a sacrifice of blood? Because sin defiled the perfect creation of God with death. When man moves away from God, he moves away from life. And so Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. A serious offense cannot be covered over with a a small offering. Life had to be given. Blood is an essential component to life, so it was seen almost like a detergent to wash the temple clean of sin. The sins of the individual, the sins of the community, applied to the life and death of the sacrifice. God provided this system for His people to facilitate their worship, to facilitate their fellowship with Him, to address the problem of sin that threatened their nearness with God. It was very useful to helping the Israelites live in covenant relationship with God, but it was not perfect. The old covenant sacrificial system served important purposes, but by its nature, it was incomplete. And so if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about why the Old Covenant was not enough. Why the Old Covenant that God had given to Israel by design demanded a better sacrifice, demanded a more perfect atonement for sin. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the Old, as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So what specifically is the writer of Hebrews talking about here? He's saying that Christ comes, and in his life and in his ministry, he offers a new covenant, a better covenant, to replace the covenant that existed before. The old covenant had been flawed. If it had not been flawed, there would be no need for a second new covenant. A new covenant that had been prophesied way back in Jeremiah 31. A new covenant that had been declared in the Psalms. The old covenant that Israel had lived under until the life of Christ was ordained by God to accomplish many things and serve the Israelites, but it was not faultless. And God's word reveals its faults to us. First of all, the sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle and then in the temple, they did not defeat our sins once and for all. The very fact that this system of sacrifice continued on with new animals being sacrificed and new offerings being given to cover new sins again and again and again, Sabbath after Sabbath, year after year, for nearly 15 centuries before Jesus would make it very clear to us, the atonement illustrated in those sacrifices did not actually solve the problem of our iniquity. They didn't change the heart. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected, For all time, those who are being sanctified. Now, as you look at that passage of scripture in Hebrews chapter 10, particularly in verse 11, you begin to see the evidence of why the new covenant is in always better than the old covenant. The Hebrew word for atonement that was used in the Leviticus system is kafar. Kafar means to cover. It's literally the same word that's used in Genesis 6.14 when God is instructing Noah on how he's supposed to build the ark. He tells him to take pitch and kafar cover the ark, with pitch to seal it and keep the water from seeping through its planks. So to atone for something is to cover it up. When you cover something, it doesn't cease to exist, does it? These atonement sacrifices covered sin in such a way that God's wrath was delayed but like a bandage over a wound, they did not actually address the root of the issue. The Greek term that is used in Hebrews 10.11 is not the equivalent of the word kafar, And it reveals how the sacrifices made in the Levitical system fell short. They covered sin, but they were not able to atherain, which is the Greek word here used to describe taking sin away. They were not able to take the sins of man away, Hebrews 10, 11. Though the sins of the people were covered under the Old Testament sacrificial system, this was only to tide them over until a better sacrifice could come. God knew that the sacrificial system would not ultimately solve the problem until a better sacrifice could be provided. So it fell short in that it had to happen again and again and again. If you offered an animal this week, next week you sinned again, you had to come and bring another sacrifice. Here's the second reason why the Levitical system of sacrificial offerings was insufficient. The value of the sacrifices themselves were insufficient. Now let me preface this by saying that animals are a part of God's creation. They are therefore important to Him. He made provisions in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, this man and woman, to have dominion over the animals, to care for them, to look after them. Adam lovingly gave these animals names So animals are not insignificant to God. The deaths of these animals were chosen by God to show just how terrible sin's effects are. But remember, too, that under the sacrificial system, strict conditions limited the kind of animals that could be offered as a sacrifice. They couldn't be sick. They couldn't be deformed or injured. They couldn't be old and used up. Still, the blood of animals, no matter how perfect that animal is, is not the equivalent for the blood of a human being. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. When God created all things, He created man and woman at the end. And He said something very unique about their creation. He didn't say this about the birds of the air, or about the beasts of the field, or about the fish of the sea. He said of Adam and Eve that they were created in His image to bear the image of God in themselves. And this set man apart from the rest of creation. It doesn't mean that the rest of creation is insignificant to God, but it means that the blood, the life of an animal is not the same as the life of a human being. There is no animal made to bear the image of God. And any suggestion that man is just a different kind of animal is in direct opposition to the clear teaching of God's word. Why then would God have made the people offer these animal sacrifices. We, we learn about this in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 3. <coughs> For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having been once cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year after year. Man is a forgetful being. We do something terrible. We feel horrible at it at first. But over time, we begin to put our attention on other things. We begin to forget just how serious our offense was. And unless God is reminding us of the seriousness of sin, we are prone to fall back into the same patterns that we made for ourselves when we ignored God the first time. The sacrificial system that is described in Leviticus was designed as a reminder to us of our great need for atonement. It was put in place so that we would not take sin lightly, so that the nation of Israel would care about their holiness before God. But that system could not conquer sin once and for all. The third point that I'd like to make as we consider the faults of the Old Testament is that ultimately, the one offering those sacrifices, the person who brought the animal to the altar, could never, res- or that the sacrifice that they were trying to bring could never be the result of man's sinful efforts. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, meaning the sacrifices of men, but a body you have prepared for me. This is Jesus speaking. In burnt offerings and sinner offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Any salvation that is dependent on the works of man cannot save man. These individuals, these Israelites who brought animals to the, to the offering place, who, who brought of their own stock, who gave something, they were bringing of their own efforts. And God wanted them to see that their own efforts, no matter how noble, no matter how much effort and energy they put into it, could never atone for their own sins. It always fell short. They always fall back into their iniquity. Ephesians 2, 8-9 in the New Testament reminds us that for by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's ironic that so many of the people in the world that have a religious interest, they go into churches thinking that the way they're going to earn their way back to God is by offering these sacrifices, these personal sacrifices that fall short. They don't usually bring a bull or a goat or a lamb, but they come and they, they give an offering of money. They come and they give an offering of their time. They come and they offer some devotion, some portion of their week, and they think, this should appease God. This should please Him and make me acceptable to God. But the sacrificial system, if it taught us anything, taught us that the things that we bring to God are never enough. There needed to be a better sacrifice. There needed to be a better atonement. Man needed his sins not just covered. He needed them removed. Man needed assurance that his healed relationship with God would not be ruined by his own sin again and again and again. And so the Levitical system of sacrifice pointed forward to the answer that God had prepared from the beginning. Jesus is the true sacrifice that we need, church. Hebrews 10, verses 8 through 14. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool to his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here the author of Hebrews describes to us exactly how God had planned, even before time began, to defeat the sins of his chosen people and to ensure that nothing would stand in the way of their eternal fellowship with him. When Jesus stood silent before his accusers, allowing them to hurl false accusations against him, making every effort to assassinate his perfect character before the Roman uh, prefect Pontius Pilate, he knew that he would shortly be condemned. He knew that he was he was living his last hours on earth. And in accepting his mission from the Father, Jesus was absolutely aware that he was about to do away with the first covenant. The covenant of law, the covenant that continually proved to Israel and anyone who tried to keep it that they could never fully attain perfection. Under the old covenant, another sacrifice would be necessary and another and another. How many of those would be enough? As many as it took To make people realize that none of them could be enough. None of them could do what the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, could do. Do you remember when John the Baptist first sees Jesus approaching in in the very beginning of the book of John? And he directs the crowds to behold him. And he explains. He says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The prophet John the Baptist knew exactly why Jesus had been sent. And he was signaling to Israel, listen, the better sacrifice has arrived. All those sacrifices that had been offered in the tabernacle first, and then later in the temple, they were in obedience to God's command. That was what God had called them to do at the time. But they were placeholders for the real sacrifice that would one day come. And now that Jesus had taken on flesh, he could live the life that we never were able to live. Jesus walked the earth as you and I do, but Jesus never committed sin against God. There was not one of God's many rules that Jesus ever violated. His heart was perfectly pure at all times. He never desired to do what was wrong even. This Jesus took on flesh And lived the perfect life. A life that is worthy of exalting. And yet that perfect life he willingly gave as a sacrifice on the cross. This holiness of God that we've been talking about too means that God can't just pretend like sins didn't happen. He can't just look the other way and pretend like we're okay and expunge the record. Every sin that you have ever committed will be punished by the wrath of God one day. It will either be punished on you or it will be punished on God's perfect Son, Jesus Christ. When He was nailed to the cross and lifted up before man and made an example of a curse, He was putting to death the sins that all the faithful have ever committed. Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ will not stand before the throne of God and answer for their own sin. They will stand before the throne of God Next to a mediator, Jesus Christ, who will testify and say, those sins were all paid for in full. We serve a God who loves us so much that he would give his only begotten son so that whoever would believe on him and the death, burial, and resurrection that he performed in this life would not be condemned forever in their sin but would have everlasting life because of the work of Jesus This is why the new covenant is the better covenant. It's historically significant. If you look back at the temple, which was the place where Israel, at the time of Jesus, had to bring their sacrificial offerings, had to bring their bulls and their goats and their lambs, that temple continued on for a few years after Jesus. But lo and behold, in 70 AD, there was a great uprising. And after a skirmish, Jerusalem was burned and the temple was destroyed. And that physical temple, that place where the Israelites had to bring those lambs and those goats and those bulls, was made ash. There was nowhere for the Jewish people to bring those sacrifices anymore. And they lamented the loss of that temple. But friends, that was God's way of historically releasing us from this obligation to bring sacrifices to Him. There has been one sacrifice that really counts, and it is the only one we need. We don't have to continually come to church with an animal in tow to give another life because the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ covers the sins we've committed in the past, the sins we do today, the sins that we haven't even thought to commit yet if our faith and hope is in Jesus Christ. And so that is the question today, friends. Is your faith and hope in the work of Jesus Christ? If Christ is not your Lord, if you have not come to terms with the sins that you commit against God and realize that you are powerless to undo your sinful nature, if you have not stood before the Lord God with a repentant heart and said, God, I can't deny it anymore. I can't save myself. I need you. If you have not recognized that God sent Christ to pay the price for the sins that you couldn't afford to pay, If you have not trusted him in faith and said, Lord, be the Lord of my life, I receive your free gift of salvation, then I pray that today will be the day when God, through the Holy Spirit, will change your mind forever. I don't want anyone in this room entering into the eternity that lies before all of us without an advocate standing by their side, a perfect advocate who can stand in their place and say, Your sins have been paid in full. So, church, I urge you, if if you are not a believer today, I urge you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to repent of those sins that have kept you far from God. He wants you near to Him. He wants a covenant people that will be close to Him, will represent Him well, who will depend on Him in every way, shape, or form. And He is winning those people to Himself through the work of Jesus Christ. We are grateful that you're here today. Um, if you have prayer needs, then there's a prayer card in the seat back in front of you, on that prayer card, there's also a little box you can check that says, I'd like to know more about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you turn that in today in the box in the back, um, we'll contact you this week. We will make time to come and meet with you, to answer your questions, to give you clarity where there, there might, might not be clarity about what it means to be saved and to walk with Christ. We would love to have the opportunity to, to talk with you about salvation, that this Easter might be the first year of your life, might mark the beginning of newness of life, that you might have a restored relationship with God, that you can come near to Him because of what He has done for you. Would you please uh, bow your heads, close your eyes as we have a word of prayer? God, I thank you for the Word, and I thank you for the ways that it lays plain to us. The realities that we would rather ignore God, the vast majority of people in this world do not want to think of themselves as sinners. They want to think of themselves as good people. And if they are good people, then of of course a good God will welcome them into his good heaven. But God is not just good. God is perfect. And his heaven is not just good. It is absolutely pure. And so without a godly intervention... Without Jesus Christ washing away our sins by his own very perfect blood, we have no means of getting to heaven. I pray, Lord God, that today in churches throughout the world that the gospel is preached boldly and in truth and that your Holy Spirit who has done the groundwork that has begun to change hearts and turn people to you would awaken those who have been asleep, would would open eyes that were blind so that today might mark the day of salvation for them. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. Not only did he offer his life up as an offering for us, a sacrifice, but he showed that he was mightier than any lamb, bull, or goat. He rose on the third day. He rose victorious over sin and death. And we can rise with him too if our faith is in Jesus. Thank you for this day, God. We thank you for loving us. Please continue to draw us near to you as we spend time with our families, as we travel to various places. Give us safety, God. Help us to know that you are the one true God and that your plan of redemption is perfect. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.